Hello and welcome, friends, to a very special Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on Forward Radio. We're your community radio station broadcasting from here in the historic Hayburn Building at 106.5 FM and live streaming to the world. Anywhere you got an internet signal, you can find us at forwardradio.org, both live and archived. Go to forwardradio.org to get it all. And also go there to become a part of our community radio station. It's for you, by you. We want your voices behind these microphones and your sweat equity behind the scenes. And we also need your contributions to stay on the air. It's so refreshing to have a station in our community without any advertising. And you make that possible. Every one of our listeners who chips in $20 a day helps keep us on the air. That's all it takes to keep us going is 20 bucks. So go to FordRadio.org and see how you can get involved today. Well, what we're going to do today on Sustainability Now is take a look back at the recently concluded 2021 Kentucky Conservation Committee Legislative Summit and Annual Meeting. It was held virtually over three sessions in January. And what we're going to hear today is highlights from Session 3 back on January 29th, which put the spotlight on Kentucky's renewable energy future and the potential compatibility of utility-scale solar with sustainable agriculture and land stewardship. This session was opened by Dr. Benjamin Knoll, KCC Board President, who you'll hear from in a minute, Lane Boldman, the Executive Director, and Randy Strobo, the Legislative Agent for KCC. They introduced several special guests who you're going to hear from today, Kentucky Representative Mark Hart and Kentucky Senator Reggie Thomas, Matt Partymiller of the Kentucky Solar Industries Association, Carson Harkrader, CEO of Carolina Solar Energy, Michael Bout, Director of Regenerative Energy and Land Management for Silicon Ranch, and local farmers Nat Colton and Chris O'Daniel. It is a really rich session, so with no further ado, I'm going to turn it over to the folks at the Kentucky Conservation Committee. If you want to play along at home, you can go to kyconservation.org. And here they are on Sustainability Now. Thank you very much for being here today. Um, my name is Dr. Benjamin Knoll. I am the president of the Kentucky Conservation Committee Board of Directors. And on behalf of the board and everyone, we're excited to have you here today. Thank you for being here for our third and final of our three annual summit virtual sessions this year. We want to give just a little bit of background about our organization before we kick things off. The KCC is one of Kentucky's oldest environmental advocacy groups. It was founded in 1975. And what we do is provide a trusted voice of the public in Kentucky's capital throughout Kentucky and advocate for the protection, restoration, and sustainable use of natural resources in our Commonwealth for the equitable benefit of everyone. And the four key areas that we focus on are land conservation, biodiversity, clean energy, and climate change. Although we also bring in other issues and considers those as they are relevant to our mission. And especially it's important to know that we try to work our hardest in a bipartisan manner to ensure that our democracy works for everyone, and especially those who are not able to effectively advocate for themselves. We are a 501c4 nonprofit. That means we're not, that, that means that the deductions that you give are not tax deductible, but it does allow us to engage in unlimited advocacy work in our state capital on behalf of these issues that we care about. Before we get started, too, I wanted to give a big shout out to Lane Boldman. She is our executive director for the organization, and also Randy Strobo, who's here with us today, our legislative agent who engages in a good deal of work in Frankfurt on our behalf, along with Lane, and we're grateful to have them both with us here today. And with that, then, I will hand it over to Lane, and she'll tell us what we'll be doing from here for the rest of the session. 
Thanks, Ben. The way today is going to work is uh, we've got three primary presenters that work in solar, and we also have a couple of people that represent agricultural interests. And so we're going to ask the solar presenters to, to give you, you know, their comprehensive presentations, and then we're going to ask the farmers to chime in on critical questions they might have. And then we also have a special guest, uh, Representative Mark Hart and Senator Reggie Thomas, to help raise some of the questions that their constituents might so with that, I'm going to turn this over to Randy Strobo of Strobo Barkley, who is my partner on a lot of legislative issues. Thanks, Lane, and thanks, everybody. We're um, really lucky today to have Representative Hart. We've known Representative Hart for a couple of years now. We've been working with him, but he represents the 78th House District, which is uh, Harrison, Pendleton, and parts of Scott County, a native Kentuckian. He currently lives in Pendleton County with his wife and two daughters. He holds a, a BS in biology and a minor in psychology from NKU. He served in the Army National Guard as an artilleryman and combat medic for almost 10 years and uh He's also a retired firefighter and paramedic with the Lexington Fire Department in Pendleton County. Um, he currently serves on as the vice chairman of the Agricultural Committee. He's also a member of the Appropriations and Revenue Committee, VMAP, which is Veterans Military Affairs and Public Protection, and, and several others. And Representative Hart, you know, we've worked with him on net metering issues. He's been very supportive of those issues in the past. Um, and he's always had an open door to us, whether we agree with him or not. And, and we really appreciate um, his efforts in, in keeping that door open. So, Representative Hart, it's on to you now. And feel free to give us your thoughts about what you think generally the session how the session's going to end up going. And if you have any thoughts about this topic, yeah, uh, feel free to express those too right now. Thank you, Randy. I appreciate the invite. And, and I'm just going to kind of reiterate what you just said. I love working with this group. Uh, you know, to be able to be bipartisan, the beauty of being able to agree to disagree and still go forward and work forward towards things, that's something I think we're losing in a lot of our political settings. And I've always had the pleasure of working with you guys. And sometimes we don't agree, but we always we do it the way it needs to be done. We'll, we'll agree to disagree, and then we'll work towards a, a more positive outcome that, that can benefit both sides of the aisle, so to speak. Uh, I'm really excited about this topic that you're all talking about today. I have a solar farm that is being developed in one of my counties, in Harrison County. I'm learning a lot about it as this project is developed. I mean, uh, right now I know of uh, two different companies that are operating in Kentucky creating and developing solar farms, uh, Carolina Solar Energy and Silicon Ranch Corporation. What I find exciting about this topic is the fact that it can help the farmer diversify his revenue source. It gives them an opportunity to create a revenue stream that can help with operating costs and stuff and maintain their farm. And then one of the other things that I found really interesting, you can take degraded land and you can put the solar modules on there. And as you're generating solar and creating a revenue source to, to maintain that farm or that land base, it's allowing the soil to uh, regenerate and the nutrients to build back into land that would otherwise not be available to produce anything that could create a revenue source. So I find that exciting. And from what little bit I've seen and learned about it, the fact that you can you can put it up on a farm and if you're a cattle farmer or sheep or goats or whatever the livestock would be, I mean, it's developed in a way to where it doesn't restrict the grazing of your livestock. And also, in some of the more rural areas, it don't interfere with deer and your elk and your other grazing animals that are in the wild wouldn't interfere with, with what they do. So I like the fact that it provides a lot of benefits without really upsetting the apple cart, so to speak. And one of the neat things about it is the fact that it's a, it's a clean energy. You know, the more of these things that we develop, the more we can slowly wean ourselves off of the fossil fuels that we all so desperately uh, cling to for our energy sources. Okay, so I have the privilege of introducing Senator Reggie Thomas. We like to have guests from both parties. Uh, senator Thomas is my senator. 
What I love about Reggie is he's got an open door. I can go to him anytime, give him a call. And he is really engaged in asking me questions when it comes to especially clean energy issues. Reggie is the 13th district Fayette County. That's the core bluegrass area. And while he's mostly in the city area district, he is surrounded by prime agricultural land. And currently he serves as the minority caucus chair and he's been in the Senate since 2014 and currently on the Economic Development, Tourism and Labor Committee education and rules committee and licensing and occupation and uh, i'm sure plenty more so uh, any other things you want to bring up right now well, well lane thank you for having me very much and i always enjoy visiting and talking to you lane as you know you and i have have great conversations and uh, i just enjoy being with you i want to tell your audience today that this conference and this meeting today is vitally important because we're we're seeing a watershed moment with regard to clean energy. America's now turned the corner and the focus of our federal policy and I think our state policy now is going to be on clean energy and reducing the influence of, of fossil fuels. Not getting rid of it necessarily, but but recognizing that we need to expand our inventory and create more emphasis on clean energy. So I, I think this is the beginning of, of, of a sea change in America. And I think the ideas we talk about today, and we need to have some plans developed so we can move forward and again, develop more clean energies here in America. Uh, climate change is real, it's upon us. And if we don't do any, something to improve our climate, then we will put future generations, you know, my children and grandchildren and your children and grandchildren in a world of hurt in future years. So we have to really protect and save our, our environment. Uh, let's roll on our sleeves, uh, get to work, and talk about things that we're going to do to really make our environment cleaner, safer, and healthier uh, for us today uh, and for our, our future generations tomorrow. So what we're going to do now is we're going to turn this over to three presenters who will talk about what is happening in solar, particularly large-scale solar and the intersection of farmland. And we're going to kick off with Matt Partymiller, who is our guest from the Kentucky Solar Industries Association. Thank you, Lane. I appreciate the time this morning to speak with everyone. Again, uh, my name is Matt Partymiller. I'm president of the Kentucky Solar Industries Association. I certainly appreciate the, the comments of Representative Hart and Senator Thomas. Uh, I think 2020 will be the decade of solar in Kentucky. I think we'll have a great opportunity to make uh, both those gentlemen happy by contributing substantially to investment in Kentucky and also contributing tax dollars to uh, Kentucky's budget for future years. Talking a little bit about our industry association, we were founded in 2017. Our goal is to represent the interests of the solar industry, in particular in Frankfurt. Our current membership includes everyone from small residential solar installers uh, through national utility scale developers. So one to two people in a company to hundreds of people working across the U.S. All our members are investing in the Commonwealth. We're doing that through our involvement in this industry. And all our members believe that all Kentuckians can benefit from the growth of the solar industry in the Commonwealth. And really, uh, my quick presentation this morning is just to give a quick primer on our industry. The solar is a disruptive technology because it's extremely scalable. We've got members that are installing single panel systems uh, to members that are installing one million panel systems. And the technology, the physics, whether it's a single solar panel or a million solar panels, it's largely the same, but it's the use in the industry that differ. You know, we're not talking about a solar yard light or charging up your phone with a solar panel. We're instead talking about systems that uh, directly provide power to the grid. And in our industry, we often think about these as two separate sectors. Uh, we have the, the DG sector, which is your residential, your business solar, the stuff that exists on the customer side of the utility meter, if you will. And then we have the utility scale projects, uh, the projects that are uh, 
literally connecting at the transmission, maybe distribution level and pumping power uh, right into the grid, just like any large power plant may. And I think what many folks may not realize is how large this sector is, this utility scale sector. The vast majority of solar, some 75% of solar built in the state to date, is this utility scale solar. Uh, that number is likely to grow. DG and distributed generation in Kentucky has a, a few handicaps that we're working on at the legislature. Uh, we do have a small net metering capacity. We do now have some other restrictive prohibitions on, on interconnection. But uh, utility scale uh, doesn't face some of those challenges, it has its own challenges, but it does have access to great markets in Kentucky. Kentucky, we talk about as the nexus of our great distribution hub for transport throughout the nation. And in Kentucky, we also benefit on the utility transmission level from being interconnected with MISO and a regional transmission grid in the western part of the state, PJM in the north and east, TBA in the south, and then KU and LG&E doing their own things in the central part of the state. So there's a lot of different regional grids that these utility scale developers have access to in Kentucky. All those regional grids are actively adding solar. We've got about six gigawatts of solar capacity in the various queues in Kentucky, meaning uh, projects in early stage development. Some may even be late stage development at this, at this point. And these developers are coming in, they're seeking land, they're seeking ways to interconnect with those grids. And then as they get through uh, the initial permitting process, they're moving into actually then building these large arrays. Some undoubtedly won't get built, but many will. And what that means from a Kentucky perspective is that we're going to go from you know an industry that's invested a couple hundred million in building solar in the state as of now to an industry that over this next decade will invest billions of dollars in building solar in Kentucky, providing good jobs, good opportunities to Kentuckians. And I'm really excited about that. So I just want to close by talking a little bit about what is actively happening now. Uh, I'll go through these regions briefly. Here in the western part of the state, Big Rivers Utility Territory, that is part of MISO. Big Rivers has 260 megawatts of solar currently contracted. I know there are a couple developers working to build that capacity soon. In the eastern part of the state and the northern part of the state, uh, we have PJM, uh, which is a regional eastern grid, and that's uh, AEP and Duke. Uh, both those utilities are exploring solar. Duke's already built some solar up in uh, Grant County and Boone County. We have throughout the state municipal utilities like Henderson, Owensboro, Frankfurt. Henderson is building its own solar capacity or exploring building. KYMEA, which is an association of municipal utilities, is building some 70 megawatts out in western Kentucky for delivery to their members. And then, of course, KULG&E throughout the state are currently exploring, uh, they have an RFP on the street now for 200 megawatts of solar. And all told, this you know, roughly six gigawatts in the queue is a, a great sign that we're gonna see a lot more solar happening in Kentucky in coming years. And I'm really excited to see what our presenters, Carson and Michael, have to say about that. Thank you. Hi everyone, it's a real pleasure to be here today. My name is Carson Harkrader. I'm a CEO and owner of Carolina Solar Energy, which is a utility scale solar energy company. Um, we're based in North Carolina. Uh, we've been in, around for 16 years and we develop utility scale solar projects in North Carolina, Virginia, and now Kentucky for the last two years. So we've, we've developed 45 projects that are operating in North Carolina, almost half a gigawatt of operating solar. So the work my company does, it's really a lot about engaging with landowners. We decide the size of the project, we apply for the interconnection, we do all our local and state permitting, environmental and cultural reviews. And the most important thing I do as CEO of the company is decide where we should go and try to develop some new solar projects. 
And as I mentioned two years ago, I decided to make the leap to uh, come into a new state and develop some solar projects in Kentucky. We now have five solar projects that are lined up to um, interconnect to the grid probably in 2023 and 2024. And they're between 50 and 60 megawatts in size each. We know that all of our you know, solar companies that are coming into working in Kentucky, we know that we're bringing something new. We know this is new technology for everyone. Our goal is to be very open about the technology and answer questions. And part of my company's mission is to educate legislators and the public about solar. One thing we love about solar, and we've really found in North Carolina, is that it is really truly a bipartisan issue. There are aspects to solar energy, whether you're talking about property rights, agriculture, energy independence, the environment. There are aspects to solar that everyone has an interest in, and the polling that we've shown shows solar across the political spectrum as over 90% of people have a positive view of solar energy. There are very few issues that get such positive results from uh, voters in polling, so that's something, obviously, that's a lot of fun. So I'm going to talk today about the economic drivers and why solar is coming to Kentucky all of a sudden. It feels like all of a sudden, probably. I'm going to talk about um, solar and agriculture a little bit, and I'm also going to talk about decommissioning and what happens at the end of a solar project's lifetime. So the economic drivers, the number one reason that solar power is increasing in use is cost and efficiency. Um, just like we see our cell phones over the last 15 years have gone from these little flip phones to, you know, basically a computer you can hold in your hand, the solar panels are doing the same thing. Each year, the solar panel manufacturers are coming out with panels that can produce more and more electricity more cheaply in smaller amounts of space. And so that cost decline has led from solar being sort of a niche, okay, maybe sometime in the future it'll work, to something that really works really well um, today. Another issue that a reason that solar is coming to Kentucky is corporate demand. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. And the, another reason is utility demand. Utilities are crunching the numbers and looking at this and seeing, hmm, this would be a good positive part of my energy mix that will benefit ratepayers. So Matt mentioned the PJM region. And, and the PJM region is the main reason that my company decided to come to Kentucky. And Matt, I know you did not mention actually East Kentucky Power Co-op, which covers a lot of the um, central southern part of Kentucky. East Kentucky Power Co-op is actually also part of PJM, and that's where all my projects are located. And within PJM, energy companies and businesses that want to buy solar can transact with each other with a private contract. And the private contract does not need to go through the local utility. It does not need to be approved by the Utilities Commission or the PSC. It is a direct private contract. And we, of course, as solar companies, love that because we can find a company that wants to buy solar, sign a contract with them, and it's sort of the private market just making this happen. And as we know, a number of um, large companies that have business in Kentucky have made pledges to go some percentage, if not 100% uh, clean energy. We know in January of last year, so a year ago now, Toyota and Dow announced they had signed commitments to buy solar. And we know that other companies such as Amazon and other large companies that do business in Kentucky are, are very large uh, purchasers of renewable energy across the country, uh, Facebook, et cetera. We also know other drivers, LG&E, for example, just recently came out with a multi-hundred megawatt request for proposals for new energy that could include solar. And so solar companies, I know, will be bidding into that RFP and trying to make the best economic case. 
there is some misinformation that I've heard feedback from community members who think that this, all the solar projects in Kentucky, oh, all this energy is just going to go power the Northeast. It's not going to be used here in Kentucky. And from my experience, what we're seeing in terms of the corporate demand here in, or in Kentucky, that is definitely not the case. There is a lot of demand from companies in Kentucky for this power, and that is going to help those companies want to continue. Having solar available in Kentucky is going to help those large employers continue to want to be based in Kentucky. Also, some of the major bourbon distilleries, a number of them have made announcements about solar, which you may have seen. And I think the list of the companies in Kentucky that are wanting to go solar will continue to grow. So I know the topic of today is specifically about agriculture, and I want to talk for a little bit about how solar and agriculture work together. Um, obviously, coming from North Carolina, North Carolina is my home state. This is where the company is based. We have a lot of experience putting solar on land that has been in agriculture and all the different issues that that raises and, and questions that people have. And it's really something that's really important to think about. And Michael Bauté from Silicon Ranch is going to talk a lot more about that. But a couple things I want to share. One is that when we think about solar on agriculture land, some of these projects, I mean, our projects are typically around 400 acres of solar. And that sounds like quite a lot of, of agriculture land. But when we look at a particular county, there are really only a few small locations where we could base a solar project. In order to have a solar project go into a particular piece of ag land, we need a transmission line that has the right type of capacity and the right amount of capacity that can fit that solar project. We need um, large parcels of land that don't have too many streams or mountains or hills on them and that are owned by individual landowners and not, so we're not trying to have one project where we've got, you know, 50 different landowners. We need a much smaller amount of landowners. We need, um, you know, we can't have sinkholes, um, areas with lots of karst. We can't have floodplains. Um, there are so many different things that, you know, we get calls all the time from landowners who say, oh, could you please use my property for solar? And we just can't. Um, so I think while we, we certainly understand there's some concern about some ag land being lost, um, even in North Carolina, we're the number two state in the country in installed solar already. We have many gigawatts of solar installed, and it's less than 1% of all the ag land. So we understand the concern, but, um, and I think Representative Hart really touched on this, you know, the opportunity to put solar on their land, when we find landowners who want to do this, I mean, the conversations that we have with them about what this is going to mean for their grandchildren, for their ability to farm their other parcels, for their ability to have economic security in their retirement, this is a huge, huge opportunity for the landowners that are able to put this on their land. And they, they make this choice very carefully. Um, most of our landowners, their land has been in their family for generations. This is not something that they just kind of, you know, wake up one morning and decide to do. They think about it very carefully. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that and, you know, the land and how it can also go back into agriculture at the end of, its, um, of the solar project lifetime. One thing that our company also does and has done in our projects in Kentucky is design sections of native pollinator species that will be planted in the edges around the outside of the solar project. And these pollinator plants will support all local honeybee populations and other pollinator populations that will actually help the surrounding ag land in terms of its production, which is what studies are showing. So that's something we're doing to try to give back to the ag community. So I said I was going to talk about decommissioning and what happens at the end of the solar project life. I know that's a big question for people that care so much about this ag land. Solar panels come with a 25-year warranty from their manufacturer. And we actually expect the panels to produce, you know, a really healthy amount of power for at least 30 to 40 years. The energy production from each panel degrades very slightly each year, but they will still be producing power at the end of that 40-year term. 
The solar project owner holds the responsibility to decommission the solar project. And that is enshrined in our leases with our landowners and also in our state level permits and any local zoning permits that we may need. When you saw that, that video of the solar project, the panels are sitting on these racks and the system that installs the racks into the ground uses a pile driver that literally just pounds those racks directly into the ground. There's not any concrete used. And so at the end of the solar project life, we have decommissioning plans and what they call for is a machine will just lift those posts right out of the ground. Um, any uh, electrical wires that have been trenched will be dug out. The uh, this inverter that you saw on that small concrete pad, those concrete pads can be removed. And the land at the end of that uh, 30 to 40 year lifetime of the solar project can go back into agriculture. There is nothing that has been put into the ground or changed in terms of the, the earth that has changed that would prevent that land from going back into agriculture. And um, one of my friends who's on this call who's in the industry talks about solar as a placeholder for the future because those landowners and their descendants will be able to decide in 40 years if they want to you know, sign a new solar lease, if they want to go back to ag, if it's a good spot now for housing, whatever it is that they want to do, they can do in the future. Blaine, can I add something? Sure. You indicated you had a farmer from Harrison County who's interested in, in looking at putting solar panels on his farm. Well, as, as I said, what Governor Brashear has proposed in his budget is a $220 million fund for small business. We, we understand how small business has been severely impacted by this COVID environment. I and mean, Governor Brashear wants to rebuild and strengthen our small businesses. Uh, that farmer in Harrison County can take advantage of that fund and borrow money at low interest loans from this proposed fund by Governor Bashir to help build those solar panels. This is what I was talking about earlier when I was saying that the timeliness of this conference is just so amazing because a lot can be done beginning this year and going forward in the 20s to really grow and develop solar here in Kentucky through opportunities that are being set in place by Governor Bashir and by the state legislature. Is there any potential for utilizing previously mined lands for large-scale solar projects? If these areas aren't going to be reforested, could they be good candidates for solar development? I'll jump in on that lane. Actually, and a lot of the mines have their own substation infrastructure and electrical infrastructure there at the mine. Um, some may not, um, but some do have actually quite good um, electrical infrastructure. The, the civil engineering issues around reclaimed mines um, is something that is being very carefully looked at. Obviously, as a solar developer, there would be nothing more fulfilling than being able to use land formerly used as a fossil fuel site and sort of transforming it into solar and, and bringing that economic development to those areas. So it's something that our industry is definitely looking very hard at. Uh, Nat, was that you that wanted to chime in? Yeah, my name is Nat Colton, and I'm here at the Kentucky State University Research and Demonstration Farm in Frankfort, Kentucky. A few things came to mind during that presentation, and to be clear, I am an advocate for solar energy, but I think that it's very important in the context of land leases, particularly on highly valuable agricultural lands that are highly productive, that farmers and landowners have all the information that they need to make these decisions as informed as possible. Specifically, I notice gravel roadways for equipment to come in and out, concrete ballast for transformers and mechanical hardware to be set on. I've visibly identified loads and loads of Ceresial espadiza, and from a visual standpoint, the ground looks highly disturbed and lacking of most of its topsoil, which would be expected in any construction site, which is effectively what this is. And I understand that in many contexts now we're using driven 
piers to mount panels on, and that is definitely less impactful than embedding concrete piers in the ground and anchoring to those. But the cables are being trenched in the ground, and there's a lot of impact from heavy equipment. So we cannot ignore the impact of soil resources that this has. And can this land be farmed again in the future? I don't think there's any question about that. Sure, it can. But the literature, scientific literature, is definitely pretty convincing that, that most complex organic matter takes a long time to accumulate and to develop. And as we disturb the soil, much of the carbon that is in the soil, particularly in the upper profile, is volatilized as CO2. So th there are losses associated with this, and therefore there are costs to the landowners. So I think that those things should be factored in when we're considering the amount of money that people are being compensated. And I'm curious if any of our presenters today know of any research that is specifically related to the impact on organic content in particular, but um, soil resources, if there have been any studies or like a life cycle analysis of soil resources for solar projects, particularly utility scale. But those are, those are my initial concerns and probably those are going to be my consistent concerns throughout this conversation and as Kentucky moves forward with this technology, which again I think is wonderful and I think we need it, but we have to consider all, all the factors and certainly our other sustainable resources in the state. I just appreciate those questions so much and I think this is actually perfect timing because Michael Bauti is a soil scientist and I think will be the perfect person to answer those questions. So um, over to you, Michael. Awesome. Thanks, Carson. Thanks, Lane, for inviting me and, and everybody in attendance. I'm very excited to talk about co-location of agriculture and solar. Um, I do this on a regular basis, and it's a very exciting field. It's advancing pretty quickly. Um, a lot of the concerns that you all already have presented, um, I'll talk about here, um, and then talk about the state of the art of co-location of agriculture and energy. Just a quick overview. I'm with Silicon Ranch. We are a utility-scale developer and long-term owner of solar energy projects. We have 152 facilities in 14 states. Uh, it's about 1,100 megawatts, another 3,000 under contract, and it is my direct responsibility to manage the land under these solar facilities. Um, we're fairly unique in the solar industry in that we are the developer and the long-term owner. So when we build a project, we are there for the 40-year useful life. Our particular business model is to purchase land. We do lease land often, but our main desire is to own the real estate as well. That gives us the unique ability to look long-term. Along with Carolina Solar, we've got one of the first utility-scale projects to your all's siting uh, board in Garrett County. I have a formal education in soil and crop science, and I was born and raised in Kentucky. I'm from Northern Kentucky in Kenton County. So um, I'm very excited to be having this discussion in my home state while I live in Nashville right now. My particular path to getting into solar uh, came from an agricultural background. Um, I had studied soil science at Colorado State University and rather go into the research realm, uh, I, I began building farm businesses. And so I've, I've operated um, any number of agricultural operations as an entrepreneur, uh, been successful, failed at a hand, you know, many of them. It's been very exciting. I started in specialty crops and then uh, quickly got into livestock production in Colorado where I was managing, you know, large 10,000 acre plus ranches, both on public and private land. That was cattle, that was grass-fed cattle production. Um, and then that led me to uh, bison production, where I actually did, I moved home to Kentucky and, and helped develop and improve a, grazing, a bison grazing program for the Brown family up in Oldham County. From there, I really got more and more interested in land management um, and the, the ecosystem services that regenerative agriculture and regenerative grazing systems are able to provide. And so from there, I, I found a, a way to get involved in the ecological restoration of solar farms. I moved up to Minnesota and developed a solar grazing program for a restoration company. And from there, started my own solar grazing company 
And Silicon Ranch was one of my first customers. And then very quickly after executing a, um, a grazing season, uh, they brought me internal. And now I get to develop our land management program. So that's a little bit about me and, and my journey and how I got here. I mentioned that we are the long-term owners. And, and, I, and I, I highlight that again because that allowed us to take a long view on our land management strategy. Uh, the industry typically uh, views the land and the vegetation as a liability, something that needs abated, simply to prevent shading on the modules. Conventional land management approach, mechanical control, herbicide applications, growth inhibitors, that's the industry's standard. So I view our land and our vegetation as a biological asset, and we can manage that such that increases those co-benefits of an energy project. Specifically, when we design in the multifunctionality of that property, we see that, you know, a two plus two equals five going on. So, so we're creating more value by, by operating the dual use. This has become a commonly known term in solar industry of agrivoltaics. And I'll go into a little bit about the history of, of, of that and, and where we're at now with that. I, I don't know if anybody knows when agrivoltaics but I'm sure it's been a very long time. To date, it seems that many of the efforts have been at, at a research scale and at, at community scale. And I love reading the, the research results and the various operational programs people are, are setting up. Um, people are looking at crop production under modules. Um, they've got a vineyard under modules. And, and that, you know, so far as nonprofit organizations are, are popping up, the American Solar Grazing Association, who's working with uh, sheep ranchers and solar developers, matchmaking technical solutions. And of course, pollinator habitat is really where we all, uh, the industry kind of, that was our, our foot in the door and really started to discuss agricultural value to that land base. Um, again, that was my, my start was working at native seed farm, planting and installing pollinator habitat and then grazing and managing that pollinator habitat through managed grazing. Our particular brand at Silicon Ranch, uh, our particular brand of agrivoltaics is regenerative energy. This is the, the combination of regenerative agricultural production with energy development or energy generation. So, and I'm very specific on that regenerative. And we don't need to get into what exactly that means. It basically taking a holistic approach, designing agricultural production systems aligned with nature, using biomimicry concepts, et cetera. Currently of the 11,000 acres I manage, I've, in the past two years, I've, I've transitioned about 2,500 of that to a regenerative program. Um, as well as uh, almost every project coming out of our development pipeline is uh, will be a regenerative energy project. Our corporate off-takers, our, our customers, they're signing up for this. They're, they're requesting these services. They want the, to see the co-benefits of that. They want to see the solar project do more as far as like an ESG perspective. Typically, uh, and, and here's, where, here's where we get into some of the restoration efforts, right? We need to keep that ground stabilized in order to reduce erosion. Industry, you know, we've moved on beyond gravel, so I won't go there. But typically, you know, we want to plant the cheapest possible stabilization that we can. That normally would look like a turf grass. I view it very differently. I see the solar industry has one of the greatest opportunities for grassland restoration, probably in the world. The National Renewable Energy Lab estimates we'll have two to three million acres of land under solar by 2030 here in the U.S. And so that, that's a fairly large amount of land. Um, as Carson said it is actually relatively little amount of uh, agri agricultural land. Um, but at the local level, and I've spoken about this before, that is a very real friction. And, and so it, I'm, I'm trying not to discount that. I just want to put it in perspective. So when we install a functioning grassland ecosystem, it does take time. These are construction projects. We did disturb those soils. Likely, if it was in agricultural production prior to our use, it probably was in conventional cropping systems that we, you know, research shows is a net emitter. And those soils, uh, the, on a typical utility project, i develop, um, those soils are incredibly degraded. And so we've got a restoration project on our hands. Um, it's not as simple as, as planting grass and preventing erosion. 
So the way in which we do that at Silicon Ranch is using holistic planned grazing. Holistic management is a agricultural philosophy, decision-making tool, uh, an approach to, to agricultural systems where we try to look at the, the full system. We view farms and our, land and our and enterprises as part of a greater organism. That organism functions with the land, with the managers, and with the livestock. When we plant a solar farm, there's a very expensive technical asset above the land. That land typically went underutilized. We now have every ability to utilize that land for agricultural production. Currently in our fleet, I've got, of that 2,500 acres, at any given moment, there's probably three to 5,000 sheep at various projects that are managed by various vendors of ours. Silicon Ranch does not own the livestock. We contract ranchers to perform vegetation management services while using managed grazing systems. Every project is different. Every system we develop is very different. A partner of ours, Pastures down in Georgia, raises twenty to 30,000 pastured poultry duck on our property during the growing season. We piloted this last year. It was quite successful. There are some hiccups that we need to address. But overall, the, the solar architecture creates a very mutually beneficial, basically it's great housing, shelter from weather, hot sun, you'll see the livestock lined up in the shade under the module. And then as far as our, you know, our site preparation, I'm out ahead of the construction project and I'm identifying any, any natural resources or biological assets there that we want to preserve, um, including agricultural infrastructure. So if we're purchasing land that has center pivot, irrigation infrastructure, barns, houses, um, we're putting that to use by, by integrating that into the long-term land management strategy and either placing ranchers there or providing that as a... Uh, as, as infrastructure for their services. So where possible, we, we no-till drill during the season, uh, basically growing forage for our livestock. That in, increases our, our soil carbon goals as well. I'll get into our carbon programs shortly. Um, as far as the research realm goes, the Department of Energy and the CEDO office um, recently released a funding opportunity. Silicon Ranch selects for award. The other selectees, National Center for Appropriate Technology. University of Illinois will be studying the impacts of pollinator habitat. And then University of Massachusetts Amherst is looking at dual cropping systems. Um, Silicon Ranch was selected to design a PV architecture to allow for cattle grazing that we call the cattle tracker. So this will be a three-year research project where we will build and test out the design and the control system for the tracking function to allow for, for cattle grazing. Um, it's a little more complicated. We're not just raising up the modules. Um, that would be cost prohibitive at a utility scale. Then we're also um, modifying the Descent ecosystem model, which is the model that the U.S. government uses to measure greenhouse gas emissions. So we will modify that and have an ecosystem model specifically designed for the solar industry where we can estimate our carbon, nitrogen, and water dynamics of a utility facility. That'll lead to a, a solar industry-specific land management carbon protocol that any solar developer can use for any land management practice on utility scale. Obviously, there'll be economic best practices coming out of the research. We need to make sure that this, this architecture is bankable and that we need third-party financing partners to invest, you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars in a technical asset and lot, basically letting us put cattle underneath them. So it's basically a, a risk analysis. And I had some background on why we're looking at, at cattle grazing. Sheep industry is relatively small in the U.S. There's a lot of land out there that's in cattle grazing. Um, the value to the rancher, I want to also comment on that, shade is an incredibly underutilized resource for livestock producers. So again, think that the symbiosis of the architecture itself creates shade, reduces uh, temperature on the soils, per, you know, holds more soil moisture at that point. So we'll be building a, a 250 kW system to Georgia at White Oak Pastures that'll power a USDA slaughter facility. And we'll test out the cattle system 
And one of our project goals then is to exit the research uh, with a large-scale PPA for a cattle tracker system. So there's a bunch of us looking into the R&D side of this. We are very adamant about what is our impact on the land and on the ecology. We also have quantification methodologies for the social impact of our projects that we provide customers to hit their ESG and sustainability goals. So there's a lot of activity in this space, and we're excited to be involved in it. I'm personally thrilled to be talking about this in Kentucky. Our Garrett County project will be a regenerative energy project. That's great, Michael. I appreciate it. And, you know, one of the things that's great about the Kentucky Conservation audience is that we have a pretty equal representation of clean energy advocates in our membership and also uh, really knowledgeable land conservation people, uh, many uh, watching this presentation today. And the reason that I wanted to have a session like this is that about a, a dozen years ago, I served on the board of the Sierra Club uh, on the national board at a time when the Ivanpah thermal solar large-scale development was happening out west. And no matter how green a project is, and as much as I enjoy seeing the innovation of new technologies that are greener and cleaner, there's always environmental impact. And so in that case, uh, there's been impacts to birds, there's been impacts to desert tortoises. We knew all that at the time, but it's always a hard conversation to have. So I want to take a minute, again, invite our uh, two lawmakers and Chris O'Daniel, who hasn't spoken yet, but she owns a farm in Springfield. What I'm seeing is it's really encouraging. There's going to be a lot of opportunity for some of our farmers that's lost the ability with the, you know, the, the loss of the tobacco as a cash crop and with some of the issues that are facing our hemp farmers. This is a clear alternative to give them some uh, opportunities for more sustainable revenue source to uh, influence their farming operations. What I've seen so far, I'm very excited about. I do want to compliment Representative Hart for being an entrepreneur in solar panels, having a farm that is a solar farm. I'm hoping that he can be a model for legislators in terms of saying that this is the energy of now. It's not the energy of the future, it's the energy of now. What's driving solar now is market forces. It's a cheaper energy, second only to natural gas, getting cheaper every year. And so it is an energy source that's becoming attractive to the portfolios of your large energy companies, such as Duke Energy, which is, which is in her backyard there in North Carolina. I would really hope that Representative Hart could be a model for legislators in the state saying, look, this works and we need, to, we need to move aggressively in this direction. Okay, great. Chris, did you want to say anything? Yeah, I would love to. Hi, I'm here in central Kentucky and I'm sitting also on a small farm, 225 acres that I improved over the last 20 years. But just to say, I have, do have a little farming background. I really enjoyed Michael's presentation talking about ecosystem and the importance of the services. And just to remind everybody that the, the whole planet is in peril, yes, and we have reduced the size of that ecosystem to 25% of what it originally was. And that brings me to Kentucky and perhaps just translate a little bit what it was that Michael was touching on. I think it's important we understand that with renewable energies, which are needing natural resources, that's a way to reduce emissions while we produce clean energy. But we also have to remove the CO2 and emissions, which is done by the carbon sequestration by proper uh, agricultural methods. It's not just a matter of having forests, but any more specific ways of growing plants, diversified plants, crops, are actually shown more and more to be very efficient to remove 
CO2. And we have to uh, hopefully agree here that w what we are doing is uh, working together. We don't want that we have renewable clean energy taking place at the cost of soil's ability to, seque to, to sequester carbon. I also would like just to, for Kentucky, since I have a chance to talk here, just to say that in Kentucky, although we always talk about this beautiful state, we are still the seven most polluting state. We still have emissions that are twice as big as the average of the United States. So we have a lot to do both to reduce, but still also to remove the CO2. Kentucky's agricultural land has, has been converted over the past 20, 30 years. And since we talk about solar going 25 years ahead, I think it's relevant just to look at what happened the past 20, 25 some years. And, and we actually lost about 1 million acres of agricultural land. 500,000 of that was prime land and, and about 400 was about forest land. So I think, again, we might agree to that we don't want to continue doing that and that's why how we put how we use the soil under the solar panels to me is the cardinal point and in this piece i was trying to write was why not also look simultaneously look at land that doesn't have a purpose for agriculture uh, for living for anything like we have plenty of landfills we have plenty of of uh, brown fields and we have of course a lot of uh, reclaimed mine land why not use that first or at least simultaneously and i was wanting to know about using ballast there but if we go back to michael's presentation i would like to know what the costs are of establishing solar panels because that to me is a beautiful way to to do to accomplish both things both remove and reduce emissions uh, that that must be the the star way to do it. But here, it was just hopefully bring a little bit together. So I would love to have some discussions on the cost of the different ways of setting up these solar arrays and also input to why are we not also as expeditely using available land that is not useful for great agriculture. As far as integrating grazing systems into utility scale projects, there's additional investment in fencing systems, water systems, and that would be the same in any grazing project that is transitioning to a regenerative grazing program. So um, there's very little difference between us trying to manage regenerative grazing systems on solar than a rancher wanting to make that similar transition. Um, the vegetation installation, I'm actually finding that we're doing this cheaper because we're using livestock. The livestock can expedite the time needed to truly stabilize soils. The animal impact itself provides fertility and disturbance to the soil that it actually needs in order to establish vegetation. Uh, Michael, actually, there was a question in the chat. I was curious about the type of vegetation that you plant. What are the what are the specific grasses, and how do you choose those grass species for a particular project? My answers are going to be always. It depends. It depends. Are we talking in Southeast Georgia? Are we talking in Kentucky? Are we talking in Colorado? So again, these are very place-based projects. My approach to all of this is to find the right regenerative ranching partner early in the process, get their input in our design, our site design, and the, the vegetation species composition. If I have very healthy soils, I might plant a different species composition. My rancher may want to grass finish their livestock rather than if it's degraded land, I don't have very nutritious forage. And so it's, that's still a restoration project. 
we approach this as a farmer. We're planting cover crops while we're planting our perennials, and we're always putting seed in the ground. Always, always, always getting seed in the ground. Spring, fall, not in the summer, not in the dead of winter. And so it really depends. And then there's an ecological succession where we'll see in the early years, we'll see a lot of annual woody, like weeds that we don't want on that facility. With the right grazing system, we will slowly transition to a more desirable species composition. It takes time, it takes observation, and it takes good keen management. Someone asked for solar to work, a property had to be close adjacent to a sizable power user who wanted the power. Is that still the case or something changed? And I'll just emphasize that we've got residential solar. We've also got the large scale solar that is tied to the transmission. So I want to make sure we're not conflating some of that. Yeah. And then there's kind of a middle type that we call CNI, commercial and industrial. So I think some of the distilleries are in that where they'll have the amount of solar to power their distillery there on their property. Um, but for our projects, you know, if we're doing a 50 megawatt or 60 megawatt project for a very large energy user, it's not going to be um, right next to their uh, data center or facility. Solar uh, electricity is going to go into the wires and there'll be contracts that buy and sell that power at the hub. So for our projects at the scale we work at and that Silicon Ranch I think typically works at, we're not going to be next to the power purchaser. I want to thank you for having me uh, on this program today. As I said, this program couldn't be more timely given the intent and commitment of the present federal administration to move toward the elimination of greenhouse gases by 2050 and the strong commitment that we've seen toward acknowledging climate change and working on climate here on our federal level. Uh, I think we're also moving in that direction on a state level as well. And Lane, I, I want you personally to stay in contact with me. You have great ideas and I'm always open to looking at other legislative means by which we can move toward a cleaner, healthier environment here in Kentucky. I want to echo uh, Senator Thomas's sentiments. I really appreciate being invited to be a part of the panel. As always, it was a pleasure to be on this panel with Senator Thomas. We don't always agree on issues, but he's always a gentleman and, and uh, is slowly becoming a really good friend. So I really appreciate him being here with me but to give you the other perspective on the political spectrum of it. But I do think this is an issue that's going to be getting a lot more attention with uh, the agriculture community as we continue to find uses for uh, our farmers to diversify and to create other revenue sources to manage their operations. I think this is one thing that or an area that's going to get a lot more look at. And I hope, because I'm really excited about what I'm learning about it, I hope this is something that, that's going to maybe become a mainstay in the state and plus meet some of the, the clean energy needs that we need and, and help move not only this state, but this country forward. So thank you again for allowing me to participate. And I look forward to uh, continue working on this issue with you all. Thank you so much. And I appreciate all of the guests. Uh, you all have contributed greatly. And I do want to mention a couple of quick bills that I will put on your radar that I'd love for to have you comment on. One is SB 75, Senator Wheeler's bill on off-road vehicles. We're starting to get a lot of calls from people that live around these OHV parks and are getting very concerned about this bill. So if you look at our website bill list, please make note of that, SB 75. Also, we're getting a lot of calls now about HB 272 on water districts. Our friends at the Appalachian Citizens Law Center and Martin County Concerned Citizens are very opposed to this bill because the excess fees are not demonstrated to improve on-time payments to ratepayers who are delaying payments due to COVID. So I want to thank you all once again for coming today, and this is the last of our sessions, but you can find all of them online. Thank you so much. 
And that is how things concluded on January 29th at the 2021 Kentucky Conservation Committee Legislative Summit, an annual meeting. We want to thank KCC for the fantastic work they do and for bringing that great program to us. If you want to learn more, go to kyconservation.org. And stay tuned to Sustainability Now. Coming up in just a moment, it's your community action calendar. So get your pencils sharpened and your calendars out, my friends. Get ready to take action for sustainability. This week, you're on Forward Radio. back here on sustainability now let's get to that community calendar man there is so much great stuff happening this week you don't want to miss it first of all i want to let you know that extinction rebellion usa is hosting a benefit screening of the film necessity oil water and climate resistance the virtual screening is available now through february 21st and there'll be a panel discussion coming up on monday february 15th at 8 p.m extinction rebellion in conjunction with other climate justice partners is organizing this two-week fundraiser for indigenous water protectors and an educational panel on frontline work happening at the Minnesota Line 3 resistance sites. Registrants can donate on a sliding scale and then watch at your leisure through February 21st. The film highlights the work of Tara Hauska and other water protectors who have been fighting Line 3. The February 15th panel will present a first-hand overview of the current Line 3 situation as well as discuss COVID-preventive pods of activists going to support them in early spring. Indigenous leaders who are fighting the Line 3 pipeline in Minnesota have put out a call asking folks to come in support of their work on the front lines to stop Enbridge's construction of this tar sands project. This pipeline would transport a million barrels of tar sands a day, the equivalent of 50 new coal-fired plants. In addition to destruction of Canadian boreal forests, it endangers Anishinaabe and other tribal wetlands and rice fields, the headwaters of the Mississippi River, and is a great risk for spills and leakages for which the company has a sordid and non-transparent history. It is critical to buy time for court challenges to be heard and put pressure on the new administration to weigh in against this horrific project. You can learn more at StopTheMoneyPipeline.com. You can register to watch this film and pay what you can at eventbrite.com, E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E.com. Just search for X-R-U-S and you will find this benefit screening of the film Necessity, Oil, Water, and Climate Resistance. Also want to let you know that beginning this Tuesday, February 9th, and running on Tuesdays from noon to 1 p.m., it's a four-week course on meditation for young activists hosted by the Earth and Spirit Center via Zoom. When your community is struggling with the pain and grief of systemic injustice, the climate crisis, and the pandemic, how do you handle it personally? How do you deal on an emotional level with the burden you feel after you leave the protest? Well, join this four-week Zoom course for 18 to 35-year-olds and learn how 
how to use the practice of mindfulness to meet the crises we're all facing right now. This course offers space for self-identified activists to pause, think, and talk about our interconnected crises with a like-minded community, all while establishing or strengthening a mindfulness meditation practice. We will explore lessons, practices, and discussions centered on cultivating collective liberation through engaged spirituality. You can learn more and register at Earth and Spirit Center. Org. And again, it begins this Tuesday, February 9th, noon to 1 p.m., and it runs throughout the month every Tuesday. Now, coming up on Wednesday, February 10th at 6 p.m., it'll be an online presentation of Struggles for Racial and Environmental Justice in America's Prisons and Jails. The UofL Department of Sociology presents Dr. David Pello, Chair of Environmental Studies and Director of Global Environmental Justice Project at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he teaches courses on social change movements, environmental justice, human-animal conflicts, sustainability, and social inequality. His teaching and research focus on ecological justice issues in the U.S. and globally. He served on the boards of directors for the Community Environmental Council, the Global Action Research Center, Greenpeace, International Rivers, and the Fund for Santa Barbara. You can find the link to register at louisville.edu slash sustainability. And again, that's Wednesday the 10th at 6 p.m. Struggles for Racial and Environmental Justice in America's Prisons and Jails. Now, coming up every Thursday in February at 3 p.m., the No Waste Louisville webinar series continues. The Waste Management District offers this series of informational webinars throughout February, and they all begin at 3 p.m. on Thursdays. You can register and learn more at nowastelouisville.org, and that's K-N-O-W, wastelouisville.org. This February 11th, the topic is Louisville's Solid Waste Study. We'll break down Louisville's 2018 Solid Waste Study in what it means for our ongoing waste management efforts. Then on the 18th, it's household hazardous waste, and it wraps up on February 25th with a session on backyard composting. You don't want to miss this, folks. You can register at nowastelouisville.org, K-N-O-W, wastelouisville.org. Also on Thursday the 11th at 6.30 p.m., it's All Eyes on Louisville, the Spring 2021 Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies Social Justice Speaker Series from UofL on anti-racist practices in corporate settings. How might emerging professionals put anti-racist principles into practice as they enter the workplace? Sydney Finley, Vice President of UofL's Black and Brown Honors Society, asked just that of Nikki Lanier, Senior Vice President and Regional Executive of the Louisville Branch of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, as well as Victoria Russell, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Beam Suntory. Both Lanier and Russell have been selected as part of Louisville's 40 Under 40 and will speak from their personal lived experiences in corporate environments during this roundtable discussion. You can find the link to register at louisville.edu slash sustainability. Again, that's Thursday the 11th, 6.30 p.m., Anti-Racist Practices in Corporate Settings. Coming up on Friday the 12th, I'm really excited that the University of Louisville at noon in our greenhouse in the garden behind the Urban and Public Affairs Building at 426 West Bloom Street, we're going to be hosting our annual seed starting workshop. You can come get a jump start on your food garden this year. Join us in the greenhouse again at 426 West Bloom Street in the garden behind the building to learn about starting seeds to save money, get better results, and make the most of the growing season. Learn how and why to start seeds 
seeds early with this hands-on workshop. Feel free to bring your own seeds to start and containers to take them home in or help us start some seeds to be planted out in our campus gardens. Face masks and physical distancing will be required to keep everyone safe. More information is at louisville.edu slash sustainability. We're just coming out this Friday at noon at the greenhouse in the garden behind Urban and Public Affairs at 426 West Bloom Street. Also want to let you know that the Louisville Nature Center will be hosting a night hike and there's still tickets available for their Sunday, February 14th night hike at 7 to 8 p.m. Join us for this guided hike through the forest after dark. It'll be limited to a maximum of 10 participants and mass will be required for all. Located in the center of Louisville and adjacent to the Beargrass Creek State Nature Preserve, the Louisville Nature Center offers nature and sustainability education as well as an urban wilderness experience. You won't want to miss it coming out this Sunday the 14th at 7 p.m. You can find more information and register at louisvillenaturecenter.org. Also want to let you know the Kentuckians for the Commonwealth has issued a call to get you involved in their work for the 2021 Kentucky General Assembly. And you can find full details at facebook.com slash Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. But a big event is coming up this Monday the 15th, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. in Frankfurt at the State Capitol Building, 700 Capitol Avenue in Frankfurt. It's With Love Kentucky, a day of action at the Capitol. We're breaking up with bad legislation and outdated, dangerous ideas ideals we deserve to be heard and allowed to reimagine and reinforce a commonwealth that benefits all of us a better kentucky is on the horizon so join us on monday the 15th 10 a.m to 2 p.m eastern time as we leave love notes declarations and imaginative visions for the future we deserve we'll be repurposing election signs and installing them on the capitol lawn bring your creative energy paint a sign or write a poem if you're unable to be in frankfurt Local chapter organizers will deliver your signs and letters for you. Keep a lookout for regional chapter events to create signs together for the day of action. And again, you can learn more at facebook.com slash Kentuckians for the Commonwealth all spelled out. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you have a great week and I'll be back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well. Give me that sweet Sweet summer rain